welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA, and I'm joined again with my now regular co-host, uh, Demi Horvat. Uh, Demi, thanks again for joining. Thanks so much for having me, or I guess having me back. <laughs> so we're sitting here mid-July. It is peak summer travel season. It is peak vacation rental travel season. I know I'm sitting here in a vacation rental. What are you doing there? It looks like still in your office. Are, are we not on vacation? No, uh, unfortunately not. However, not <laughs> vacations planned, hoping that I can go to Greece later this summer, which would be amazing. That's great. And then by the time we're announcing this recording, we did have a great announcement that just came out this week. Could you just briefly tell our listeners what it was? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we'll have to make sure we post this podcast at the appropriate time. Um, but we are so excited to announce that we have made our first acquisition as AirDNA. Uh, so we have acquired a company called Arrivalist, which is the leading provider of location intelligence. So excited to share more about that uh, maybe in a future episode. And of course, our press release will be available and excited to tell you all more soon. Yeah. And, and it's something as a data nerd, I am so excited about the just troves of data they have on consumers and travelers and where they're coming from and where they're going and the additional insights we're going to be able to bring to all of our clients. So big news, big additional uh, data sets coming uh, that we're going to be able to leverage and end the product over a future time. So I'm sitting here in Maine today, and I would say for Maine, pretty crowded. It seems like people are traveling here. I've been doing my sort of informal questions of people, <laughs> sitting at the bar, hanging out at the beaches, uh, at the parking lot for hikes, getting a sense of how people are feeling. And, and broadly, and people are excited to travel. It was a bit easier this year to find rentals, find good rentals, but still people paying pretty high prices for these units and wanting to travel more. So, and it's broadly aligning with what we're seeing in our data. What have you been hearing? Yeah, also hearing very positive things. I think there's a contrast between what people on the ground are saying and maybe uh, some of the stories that I know we've been getting questions about recently, which we talked about in our, our last podcast. Um, but yeah, broadly, very positive sentiment. I know that I and people I'm talking to are planning a lot of travel, uh, much of it in short-term rentals. Sounds like you are as well. I'm actually heading to Maine for a wedding in September, so I'll have to figure out where exactly you are. And uh, we already booked our accommodation, but looks like a nice Airbnb. <laughs> Well, I fibbed a little bit. It's I'm sitting in my parents' house uh, now, which uh, they've got a couple of rentals across the street that they manage, and uh, it is a a great location. If I turned turned the video a little bit, we could we could see the water through the distance. Are they making you pay full price? The real question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and family I probably shouldn't mention this since I, I'm talking with my boss on the podcast, but she actually has a, an art gallery down the road too. So if anyone's visiting Maine. Uh, come to the Quiet Side Gallery on Mount Desert Island. Uh, so as I've been working in the afternoons, I've actually been doing it from the gallery and keeping an eye. And it's it's been fun because like she's watching my son, who's who's five, and and taking him on hikes and kayaking. And 
swimming and doing all the sort of main things and and sitting at the gallery for her uh, waiting for people to come in and so far and sitting there for eight hours working i have had one couple come in and not buy anything so i've no i've been i've been failing as a uh gallery operator yeah, we need to get you a sign so you can stand outside, draw people in, <laughs> offer them well, free I, the, economic insights. Right. Then I couldn't be working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, speaking of free economic insights for all of our listeners, um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Jamie, is I know at the start of 2023, at all of the conferences and in a lot of our conversations and kind of internal discussions about what to expect in the year. We were all talking about a recession in the back half of 2023. And as you said, we're mid-July and uh, would love to just get your sense for now that we're in the back half of 2023, when is this recession coming? What is the economic data looking like? Yeah. So it's been a theme probably in the outlook for the past year and a half uh, that I mean, there's a recession coming coming. And a lot of sort of the forward economic indicators that are generally precursors of a recession. And, and the most common one is like the inverted yield curve, uh, short-term rates higher than, than long-term rates. But that hasn't come to be. And when you look at the latest economic data, it's been really strong. So we're still adding over 200,000 new jobs. So we had 209 a thousand jobs added in June, below May's reading of 300,000, but broadly 300,000 was way too many for what and where we are in the cycle and what the Fed wants to see given inflation. So we want slower job growth. Sort of the sweet spot would be around 150, 200,000 jobs being added. Even lower could be acceptable in terms of sort of cooling off the economic growth that we're seeing. But all the while we've been seeing all this job growth, we've also been seeing inflation coming down. So sitting here last summer, we were seeing inflation rate, headline inflation of 9%. The latest rating, reading that came in this week, uh, headline CPI was only 3%. And that was I'm significantly lower than expectations and broadly points to what the Fed wants to see of price increases cooling we got the producer price index measure yesterday, and it only increased 0.1%. It's now just over 3% in terms of its year-over-year growth. So another like great factor that we're seeing that says, like, all right, the Fed's going to be able to slow interest rate increases. We are still expecting that in July, later this month, that they're going to raise rates one more time. But now my expectation is that the Fed's going to pause. We're not going to see any more interest rate increases as long as CPI continues to come down. There is that risk. And uh, when you talk with economists on why they expect the recession to still come is the lagged effects from the interest rate increases that are sort of breaking certain things in the economy. You saw that with the bank failures. What was that? Two months ago now that that was going to sort that of- only two months ago? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know <laughs> that that was going to like and spread throughout the economy. We didn't see that. We saw the Fed and Treasury step in to uh, shore up the banking sector. And 
I'm feeling better and better every month that we're going to be able to sort of skate through this. And there's going to be some pain. We may see unemployment go up a bit, but where we're not going to see a deep, uh, even a moderate recession, that it's going to be a time of slow growth. And it wouldn't expect me if GDP was flat to maybe only slightly positive over the next year. But that is way better than the recessions that most economists had been calling for the past year and a half, and really a testament to how strong and the tailwinds around the consumer are, that people are wanting to keep spending, that they still have half a trillion dollars, $500 billion of XX savings that was saved up during the pandemic that is still sitting in their bank accounts. Yes, they are spending that, and it's... <laughs> The excess savings is coming down, but it is excess savings. Like, and we can get to a period where people are saving at a normal rate with still adequate levels of uh, consumer spending, especially if inflation continues to come down and it's not eating into sort of the buying power of consumers like we've been seeing over the past year. So I, I know I've <laughs> said this, but I'm I, I'm feeling. And better and better about the economic prospects uh, for our industry and for the economy as a whole. Awesome. It's wonderful to have an optimistic economist. So just <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase, I think what I'm hearing is the rate hikes are working. We're seeing a slowdown in inflation, still seeing strong job growth. Things are looking good. So the pretty pessimistic but still measured outlook that we had at the beginning of 2023 is looking better and better as we progress through the year. Things are looking more and more positive and like we might actually end up threading the needle from a macroeconomic perspective and see slow growth but not an actual recession. Is that the right way to interpret it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we're going to know in the next couple of months in pretty... <laughs> I'm solid terms, like how it's going to play out. Like, do we start to see increasing unemployment rate? Like if it gives above 4%, that is a, a flag for me that I mean, things are maybe heading significantly in the wrong direction. If we start to see the inflation rate start to tick back up, that is going to be a clear sign to the Fed that they've got to raise rates more and raising them much more uh, is really going to put strain on the economy and could very easily push us into recession. So I'm, I keep crossing my fingers in every jobs report, every re inflation report, every GDP release I'm, that we're going to be able to save off. And then also just looking at our own data, like travel is such a real-time indicator of the health of the consumer. So yeah. every month, every week, when I'm looking at the data of how many nights got booked in the U.S.? How many got nights got booked globally? Like this is a, we've got as much as a, a real time indicator on the health of the consumer as just about any other thing out there. And that's where we see I'm really strong booking activity. People want to travel. They have the means to travel and they're traveling. So you're still sleeping well at night, it sounds like. Um, and let's get a little bit more into our data. So it sounds like the macroeconomic outlook is looking pretty positive. I know recently over the past couple of weeks, obviously there's been some back and forth conversation in the industry and in the press about, are we seeing a revenue collapse? Are we not seeing a revenue collapse? Our perspective is very much, we are not. 
Um, but can you talk a little bit about trends that you're seeing in our data related to demand and supply? Yeah. So, and it was a another, as I mentioned, another strong month for booking activity, uh, both on nights booked during the month for stays in June and, and stays throughout the rest of the year. We saw nights booked up 25%. Uh, we saw stayed demand. So amount of nights being stayed compared to the same compared to June last year of 14%. So, and that was actually a reacceleration from in May. So May was up about 11% and we saw 14% growth in June. So that was trending in a positive direction, uh, which is always nice to see. We saw though another month of declining occupancy. So for those keeping track, uh, and I'm I'm definitely one of them. We've now seen 14 or 16 consecutive months of declining occupancy. Uh, though occupancy declines were only down 1.1 percent year over year, uh, verse and we were seeing three, four, five percent in prior months. We're still seven percent higher in terms of occupancy for 2019. Mm-hmm. So yes, coming off the highs, continue that narrative of. And not as bad as it was pre-pandemic was. And actually significant 7% higher than 2019 is a lot higher than what we had seen in 2019. Supply growth continuing to cool. So at this time last year, we were at 25% growth, now 15%. So each month we're seeing the growth in listings come down, uh, which is as an operator, what you want to see. Maybe not what you want to see. Yeah, good news for the... And broadly for and people already in the industry, maybe not as good news for Airbnb and Verbo, which want to see healthy listing growth continue. Yeah. Uh, and then another maybe not so good news item is just the weakness that we're seeing in ADRs. So average daily rates up just over a percent in June. And that's some of not the lowest inflation. We're not keeping up in inflation. It's the lowest reading we've seen in a really, I, I didn't <laughs> didn't look at how long it's been since we've only seen a 1.1% increase, but I'd suspect it was back to, in the depths of the recession back in April, May of 2020 that we last seen ADR growth so weak. And with 1% growth nationally, that means most markets around the country are seeing, seeing declining ADRs. Uh, so mm-hmm. you are not getting as much for your listings today as you were last year. In many markets, it's 5 10% down, like it is significantly lower in terms of ADRs. And you combine the low growth in ADRs, the declining occupancy, and that means that RevPAR uh, was essentially flat. Uh, so revenue per available listing, we saw no growth. Uh, and that was in line with what we've been seeing in the, in the first half of the year of flat uh, declining rev pars and something we expect to continue over the next uh, into the back half of uh, 2023. Okay, super helpful. So that's the kind of overall industry outlook and and what we're seeing. What are you seeing in specific location types or any particular areas that are maybe bucking the trend or or operating at one extreme or another? Yeah, something we pay very cl- close attention to is our, our top 50 markets. So the largest uh, short-term rental markets around the country. And there's a combination of both 
uh, vacation rental markets and urban sort of large city markets uh, making up that that top 50 markets. And what we're seeing is that coastal beach locations in particular, like around the and especially around the Gulf Coast. So uh, markets such as Panama City, uh, Destin, Fort Walton Beach, uh, Santa Ro Rosa, Rosemary Beach, Gulf Shores, um, Mobile, Alabama are all part of those markets seeing pretty significant decreases in ADRs. So anywhere from four to 13% declines. And that is definitely eating into profitability. Most of those markets too are seeing declining occupancies as well. So you combine and 10, 15% decline in ADRs, five, 10% decreases in, in occupancies. And that's, that's revenue per available rental down, rev par down and anywhere from and 15 to 20%. Uh, so that is, that is meaningful. That is relatively weak. Uh, there are other markets though, especially in some larger cities uh, like Phoenix, Los Angeles, even some resort markets like Cape Cod that are actually seeing some increases in their ADRs, a return of demand to the major cities. I, we're definitely seeing that as people get back to the office. Uh, many of those markets are supply constrained too, like Los Angeles. And mm -hmm. then new regulation go into place at the end of 2019. Uh, that is really reducing the ability for hosts to add new supply into that market which makes it great for existing operators because they're not seeing the sort of new competition that many other cities are seeing. So that allows higher occupancies and higher ADRs uh, because of it. And then we talked about it some the last time we talked, but just the overall weakness in some of the other coastal destinations and especially on occupancy. Um, and especially as we look out over the rest of the summer, um, there is continued weakness out there in terms of booking pace. And there's quite a few markets that where occupancy is pacing down anywhere from 10 to 15%. We talked about Cape Cod last time down 10%. Where I'm at in, in Maine, in the Acadia area, demand uh, occupancy is pacing down about 10% for the rest of the summer. Naples uh, down about 20%. A lot of the Hawaiian islands, Maui, Kauai, the Big Island, Oahu, uh, all down um, anywhere from 10 to 15% on occupancy. Uh, so Hawaiian islands, not typically in a summer market that you travel to, had seen really good demand in 2021 uh, 20, uh, and 2022 once the islands sort of reopened for, for visitors uh, and now not seeing as much many people going during the summer months. I suspect that will pick up in their normal high season in the fall, winter, heading into early spring, but definitely some weakness as we look at uh, occupancy pacing this summer. Got it. And so I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but um, sounds like maybe some potential deals for guests and maybe some necessity to take a look at pricing for hosts. Is that what you are kind of seeing or would recommend to people to take a look at? Yeah. Pricing has been, <laughs> and pricing overall, high prices that we've seen throughout the economy have been a factor for guests. We're seeing with how high prices have gotten and short-term rentals over the past three years, we've seen the average price being paid for a guest uh, go up 30% since 2019. So that is an amazing increase in ADRs. There is some nuance to that of 
what percent is from actually host increasing prices and just the types of homes that guests are booking. So they're more likely to book a large home on the beach as opposed to a, a one bedroom condo in a, in a city. But I, even if you look You're at just setting me prices, up to ask you about the same store sales metric <laughs> for the same <laughs> properties, what does it look like for the same properties over time versus the mixed shift, Jamie? That's only 15 to 20% increase. But even that over a three-year period is a, is a pretty significant rise in overall prices. So about half the increase comes from actual unit increases in price. But I guess they're feeling it. Discounting is helping induce people to actually book. And we are seeing more last-minute bookings today than we had seen last year. Uh, mm -hmm. And we had seen the year before. So with how high occupancies had gotten, I'm anywhere from, and we had hit the record highs in 2021 and it sort of extended into 2022. That sort of trained guests that they needed to book farther in advance to get the types of units to get, and actually find available listings. And mm -hmm. now that occupancies have started to come down, people have been not booking as far and out in advance. Uh, we actually seen the average lead times drop about 10% just in the past year. And what that means, and I was actually talking with an operator down in the Miami market, and she was saying that over half of her bookings now are happening in the month of the stay, where before they had some pretty good visibility and pretty far out on terms of people that were coming. Now they're sort of getting, like, let's say, to, to July and saying, like, all right, like, we're only 40% occupied. We want to be 80% occupied. We're going to have to adjust prices sort of real time and, and hope that people book uh, and not have that uh, comfort of really long lead times in terms of forward bookings, which is sort of leading to some of the price declines that we're seeing as people discount as we get closer to the state date and guests are responding. That was a big piece of the 25% increase in nights booked year over year was now that we're sort of into peak travel season and people are wanting to go, uh, they're seeing that they can go to the destination they want to at the price they're willing to pay, uh, and they're booking it. So in a way, we're seeing people are able to be a little bit more spontaneous or able to procrastinate a little bit more and get a better deal. And I don't know if we have this information kind of at our fingertips, but are we seeing that more for destinations where people are traveling kind of buy a car, don't have to book a flight for it? Or is that something that we'll maybe have just better visibility into when we've incorporated arrivalist data into our offering? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you look at the types of destinations that are doing best. Uh, they are the sort of drive to markets that people can make a, a last minute decision to um, head out to. So like mm -hmm. Galveston, a market doing relatively well and short drive from Houston area, Myrtle Beach uh, doing relatively well. So yeah, that, that's, that's definitely playing out in the data. And it also makes maybe some of the occupancy pacing trends that we've been talking about not as predictive. Uh, so yeah, the behavior is changing. Right. In June, demand was up 14%. But then when we look at pacing, demand's only up 7% for the rest of the summer. So mm -hmm. that means that we're going to see a drop in demand growth I mean, throughout the rest of the summer. 
the pacing data would suggest that, but because people are booking closer in advance to the stay date, that means that the pacing data isn't as predictive and you're going to have more people booking last minute, uh, which means that, yes, the pacing data would expect to be weaker than we expect and that we are going to see a, as long as consumer demand holds up, we'll see more last minute bookings and demand growth will actually end up being better than that 7%. So uh, I'm sticking with my forecasts for the rest of the year, even with the sort of weaker demand pacing that we're seeing of that demand's going to be up anywhere from and around 10% uh, in the back half of the year, even though when we look at the pacing data, it's only up 7 8%. Given that changing dynamic, I think that's a very interesting insight and goes to show you can't just rely on what happened last year or the year before, especially given the strange years that we've had during COVID and post. So keeping an eye on things, super, super important. And it, and it really does. And I say that and then I'm going to give the caveat because <laughs> I feel like as economists, I, I've got to... <laughs> I've got to do the and, but not every Don't market. Worry. As someone with a consulting <laughs> background, I feel the same way. Like I have the, the non-answer. Right. Not every market sees those last minute bookings. So like mm -hmm. I'm up here in, in Maine right now and average lead time is 130 days during the summer. That's over what? three months. Yeah. So, so people that. book really far out in advance. I was actually running through it. <laughs> I was actually Four running my mom. To hear your analysis about the data, your, well, your my mom was not inviting you. My mom was freaking out because she has a, a week open in September, and she's like, mm -hmm. "Should I be worried about it?" And I'm like, "Well, let's let's look at the data and get a sense of how many people are actually booking last minute." And that's one of my favorite charts in MarketMinder is you can go in and in the pacing section actually look and see like of all the demand on any given day out into the future, how far in advance did people book? And then as of today, that are booking within the last week, where are they booking? And broadly, you don't see many last minute bookings at all. The bookings that are coming in, and there's just not <laughs> bookings coming in now that we're sort of into the high season. So mm -hmm. my suggestion to her is that, I mean, one, we should look at your prices and look at how you're priced competitively to uh, other rentals in the area. And, and it might make sense to discount to make sure they fill that date because it's it's a week. It's during during September, which is essentially still peak season in this market. It used to be shoulder season. Now we see typically really high demand or at least have the past two years. So it really sort of doubles down on the fact that you've got to be paying attention to the data in your market. You got to have the sense of consumer behavior when people are booking for that, for that destination, can you expect additional bookings to be coming in or at the rates that you're at? Or should you start discounting to sort of drive demand to your property versus one of your competitors? So what I'm hearing is if any listener is trying to go to Maine in September and wants a very good <laughs> deal, please reach out to Jamie because his parents <laughs> will post you in their beautiful property for a steal. We'll share we'll share his email in the show notes or reach out to him on Twitter or LinkedIn. So had another topic, switching gears a little bit, that I wanted to chat with you about, Jamie. So last week we talked about the tweet storm, viral Twitter collapse of Airbnb discussion that, again, I will say we're not seeing the same in our data. We're not seeing your revenue collapse. 
But we talked primarily about the kind of revenue collapse angle of the conversation that was happening online. And we didn't get into too much detail about the the second part of the assertion, with, which was really around a collapse of the housing market. So I wanted to spend some time with you just understanding that piece a little bit better. And again, we in our data are not seeing a revenue collapse related to short-term rentals. But if we were, or if in the future that were to happen, is that something that actually could lead to a collapse of the housing market? Yeah, broadly, and and my answer is no. Uh, And we've talked with quite a few. Makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked with quite a few housing economists. Like, um, as you can imagine, we've got some great contacts uh, in the industry that we talk to on a regular basis and understanding how they look at the housing market how they model the impact of short-term rentals on housing prices, um, on sort of housing dynamics and in, in general. And broadly, they are all in agreement that the short-term rental market is just too small to meaningfully impact the overall housing market. And just to put some numbers behind it, there are, as of second quarter 2023, 145 million homes in the U.S., million housing units, uh, both homes, apartments, condos, uh, the like. There are today, um, if you look at just an entire home, so excluding uh, private room and shared rooms, 1.2 million short-term rental listings. Mm -hmm. So if you just do that math, we're sitting at about 0.8% of the existing housing market. Got it. But then you have to take it one step further because typically one, short-term rentals in almost half of the industry is not a full-time rental. So it's people renting out their home part-time. They maybe occasionally use it themselves. Maybe they've got an ADU in their backyard. They've got a second home that they're switching between long-term rental, short-term rental. And the... Census, U.S. Census actually tracks homes that are used for either seasonal or occasional use. And there's mm-hmm. 5.7 million homes out there sort of categorized as vacant. So not someone's primary home and used occasionally. And okay. this is broadly what I see as like the, not the TAM or the, and the potential of what the short-term rental could grow into, but this is like the underutilized real estate out there that could easily transition to being a short-term rental without changing the number of homes that people are using for their primary residence, if that makes sense. Yeah. So just to make sure I'm getting this and maybe someone else is struggling as well. So there's 140,000 homes, less than 1% of those are listed as short-term rentals today. And yet at the same time, there's about 5 million homes that the census indicates are not in full-time use as somebody's permanent housing. And so what we're saying is, first and foremost, less than 1% is a really, really small fraction of overall housing that's currently listed as short-term rentals. And there's basically, I don't know what word to use, but almost like a, a holding pen of temporarily seasonally used properties that are most likely to convert into short-term rentals before permanent housing stock would be converted over to short-term rentals. So if I'm understanding that correctly, what we're saying is 
even if we were to see a disaster apocalypse scenario in the short-term rental market, it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to the housing market and therefore even really big swings in the short-term rental industry, given the scale of the short-term rental industry as it relates to overall housing stock is probably unlikely to make a really big impact and certainly would not be of a scale to lead to a collapse of the housing market. Did I get it? Yeah, and absolutely. And to put maybe a finer point on it. So if the short-term rental market was taking a higher share of permanent housing, Mm -hmm. we would actually be seeing the total number of seasonally vacant and occasionally used homes actually going up. Uh, And we've actually been seeing them going down. So as of 2018, there were 6.3 million homes sort of seasonally and occasionally used. And now that's dropped to 5.7 million. So we're actually seeing that go down. When we look at short-term rentals as a percent of seasonally vacant um, and occasionally used homes, that's gone from 12% in 2018 up to 20% today. And that to me is like the unlock of the short-term rental industry. And as an economist makes me so excited because Broadly, people having second homes, vacation homes that they're using maybe two, three, four weeks a year, then they're sitting empty the rest of the time is a poor use of those resources. So the fact that now they can list it as a short-term rental when they're not using themselves and bring additional tourists into that economy, add additional spending into these local economies and not actually changing the housing dynamic in these markets like is a a great use of that resource and something that I hope continues to grow and I think is part of the story of short-term rentals. And if we can convert an even half of those homes that are sitting vacant to use of housing tourists and bringing more people into a lot of these communities that really depend on tourism uh, and support more and more business, support more and more jobs within these markets, like that's going to grow the tourism industry. That's going to grow the short-term rental industry. That's going to broadly be good and not actually require us build more hotels that sit empty half the time. And there's not a lot of those properties being built anyway. We're seeing more and more international travelers coming to the U.S., wanting to travel around the world. We're seeing an unlock of Chinese and Indian travelers sort of entering the middle class that want to travel and that we can actually turn this underutilized real estate into a way to accommodate them and grow the industry, I think is is a great long-term benefit uh, for the country. Yeah, it's super interesting and an angle that I have not heard talked about as often as I would expect, because it sounds like a win-win where we basically have all of these properties that are being underutilized and are occupied only very rarely throughout the year. And yet, as they convert into short-term rental stock, that brings tourism spending to local economies, means that we're getting more use out of properties that are otherwise sitting empty and has no impact on long-term housing stock, affordability, availability of housing or anything like that, because these are already vacation homes. So that's, that's super interesting. I hope some more people will write about that. And I guess to really put an emphasis on that other piece about housing affordability, can you just speak to also what the impact 
is or what the takeaway would be in terms of if short-term rentals are such a small fraction of overall housing and we're saying they're not big enough to be able to cause a housing collapse, are they big enough to be driving up the cost of of housing or or is it yeah. small enough that it also is a small? Yeah. And we've we've done some research. We've aggregated a lot of research from um, other academics. So there's a group at, at Harvard, a group, few groups around the world that have used data to study the impact. Generally, they say the impact is anywhere from a one to four percent increase in housing prices, stemming from the advent of the short-term rental industry. So over the past few years, when housing prices have gone up significantly and anywhere from 40 50 percent in some markets and it was something and it was almost like a little case study that we saw during the pandemic of what would happen if short-term rental supply dropped by 25 percent would that cause a collapse in housing prices in a lot of these markets given that people were no longer using these homes for short-term rentals they're potentially coming onto the market and in no market did that we saw a drop in short-term rental supply, did we actually see falling home values? It was actually the opposite. We actually mm-hmm. saw home values increasing pretty substantially during that period. So only to point, not necessarily that they're in causal, but only that in a time when short-term rental supply was declining, like home values actually moved in the opposite direction. Um, so it was like a- yeah. To some extent. Right. So I guess we could take that in the positive light of the short-term rental industry isn't having some of these negative effects, or we could be insulted that the industry is very small uh, when you compare it to the overall housing market. But either way, it seems like uh, maybe the second part of that narrative in that kind of viral conversation happening right now is also maybe something that could, could use a little bit more analysis and investigation. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, those were the main things I wanted to cover with you, Jamie. Anything else that's on your mind that you wanted to share? No, I think that's that's it. We can wrap it up. Uh, we thank everyone for listening. Hope everyone's having a great summer uh, and you get to uh, spend some time outdoors. Uh, visit the beach, visit the mountains, visit some vacation rentals out there. Visit Maine in September. Go to an art gallery. I no longer remember what town it was in, but uh, Jamie Lane will be there. You can accost him and maybe buy some art. (laughs) I'll be there. Yeah. Well, thank you, Demi. uh, And thank you, listeners. Thanks so much, Jamie. 